serial killers. Where does our fascination for the worst of humanity come from? Is it that they provide a conduit to our most primal fears? For me, it's psychological. Understanding why people do what they do and how their uncontrollable urges can lead to one's life meaning so little. Committing acts so heinous, so vile, so grotesque, the realities live in our most terrifying nightmares. Join me as I tell you their story. I'm Dave Jari, and I am the Serialholic. This episode of the Serialholic contains descriptions of disturbing graphic content, which may be offensive to some people. Listener discretion is advised. Serial Killer According to the dictionary, a serial killer is a person who commits a series of murders, often with no apparent motive, and typically following a characteristic behavior pattern. If you've heard this term, then you can thank Robert Ressler and John Douglas, both agents working for the FBI who came together to seek an understanding of murders that seemed irrational, spontaneous, no rhyme or reason, and in the 1970s, almost impossible to solve. Almost. You see, before this, the term used for these killers was mass murderer. But Ressler and Douglas were adamant that you couldn't classify these types of murders in the same aspect as, say, the University of Texas Massacre, where in 1966, Charles Whitman, after murdering his wife and mother the previous night, climbed to the top of the university clock tower and murdered 16 more people. No. They knew that these murders were different, and the more they learned about them, they realized that these murders weren't so irrational. There was more behind them. They were meticulous, consistent, and dare we say, predictable. Wrestler and Douglas, along with forensic nurse Ann Burgess, began what is now referred to as the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, and hence, the term serial killer, was born. Ressler and Douglas scoured the country looking to interview these killers to better understand how their minds work and to create a criminal psychological profile. They interviewed many killers, like David Berkowitz, John Wayne Gacy, and Ted Bundy. But arguably, none helped Ressler and Douglas with their new craft more so than a man named Edmund Kemper III. Ed Kemper, the co-ed killer, born December 18, 1948 in Burbank, California, the son of Edmund, a World War II veteran, and Clarnell Kemper. Ed was a large baby, weighing in at 13 pounds, but at the time of his murders, he would stand 6 feet 9 inches tall. His young life was tumultuous, to say the least. Although he was very close to his father, his mother, on the other hand. My mother was a, a sick angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. And 
I watched the alcohol increase. I watched her social life drop off. I watched her get bizarre. She had terrible pain from her life, earlier life, her upbringing, uh, a failed marriage with my father. I'm a constant reminder of that failure. She was described by many as spiteful, abusive, and neurotic, not only towards Kemper, but his father as well, and would berate him in front of Kemper and his two sisters. His father was quoted as saying, Suicide missions we faced during wartime was nothing compared to living with her. And as I described, Kemper's parents split in 1957, and his mother took Kemper and his sisters to live in Montana. Now keep in mind, there are a few factors from within where things arguably could have changed the entire story. This could be one. Kemper loved his father and was deeply affected by having to move so far away from him. His mother, away from a man she constantly belittled, turned her attention to Kemper and in turn called him worthless, useless, and no woman would ever love him because he was pathetic. Now mind you, Kemper is just nine years old. With his father nowhere around to take the brunt of his mother's daily tirades, Kemper began to act out. He would steal his sister's dolls, dismember and behead them, and after two near-death experiences by the hands of his older sister, one being pushed in front of a train and another being pushed into a pool and nearly drowning, Kemper had become obsessed with death. He would often convince his younger sister and her friend to play some macabre games. Well, the one I remember was one that was playing gas chamber or electric chair or something, and we had this big old overstuffed chair up in my room. And we'd, we'd uh, it was not just my sister and I, it was my sister and I and a friend, a close friend. We got into all these games. We got into one game where we'd roll up in a rug and a person would try to get out of it. It's just like a large throw rug. And it was, uh, I guess, what fascinated us individually about it is it was a completely, uh, it broke up the monotony, I guess, of what we were doing. Didn't have a lot of toys to play with. Uh, we got bored with those pretty quickly. So we looked for things to do. You roll up in the rug and, and you try to get out and the other two would leave the room and we see who could get out fastest, you know, to try to work your way out sideways or scoot out the end of it or whatever. And uh, we went from that to being tied in this overstuffed chair with a cord or something or, or pieces of sheet or sash or something. This behavior progressed and eventually involved the family pets. At the age of 10, Kemper buried the family cat alive and once dead, he dug it back up, dismembered it, and placed its decapitated head on a stake. A couple of years later, the next family cat fell victim, but this time it was because Kemper was jealous. He felt that the cat favored his older sister, so he killed it, dismembered it, and hid the remains in his closet, presumably as a trophy of sorts, possibly to remind himself of the satisfaction he felt. His mother soon discovered the remains, and Kemper recalls feeling a sense of joy lying about the fate of the cat. His mother, for fear that Kemper may harm his sisters, began to lock him in the basement at night. Cold, alone, with no other light than the embers glowing through the wood-burning furnace, Kemper's disdain for his mother grew.
As I stated before, the factors within this story could have changed the ending. But for whatever reason, his mother chose locking Kemper in a basement rather than sending him to get help for his extracurricular activities. The next part of the story involves Kemper escaping the abusive grasp of his mother. As at age 15, Kemper ran away to California to be with his father. Now, some time has passed and his father has been remarried. He couldn't be bothered with his teenage problem child, so he sent Kemper to live with his paternal grandparents. In his grandfather, Kemper found a relationship like the one he shared with his father as a child. Kemper grew very close and adored him. To give him something to do, his grandfather bought him a rifle for target practice and hunting. Kemper didn't share the same relationship with his grandmother, though, as she wasn't very far from what he had with his mother. Soon, Kemper grew tired of his grandmother's constant ridicule, so after a heated argument, he grabbed the rifle he received from his grandfather, walked up to his grandmother, and shot her in the back of the head. Twice. It was also stated he repeatedly stabbed her. A bit overkill, don't you think? Kemper patiently waited for his grandfather to return home from the post office. He loved his grandfather, but didn't want to see him upset that his wife was dead inside the house. Then, as his grandfather pulled into the driveway, Kemper greeted him with a bullet to the back of the head. Tascadero State Hospital, the place Ed Kemper would call home for the next six years. Not home in the sense of white picket fences, puppies, and apple pie cooling in the windowsill. It's where the criminally insane go to live out their years, and Ed stood out from the rest. I know, he's 15 years old and stands well over six feet tall. Of course he's going to stand out. What I mean is, the doctors were puzzled as to why Ed was even there. During his trial, the court-appointed psychiatrist diagnosed Kemper with paranoid schizophrenia, a mental disorder where people lose touch with reality. Once at the hospital, the doctors ran a series of tests as per protocol. They disagreed with the court psychiatrist's diagnosis and re-diagnosed him with having passive-aggressive personality disorder. They also tested him for his IQ. Kemper scored a 145. Baffled and thinking the results were incorrect, they ran another IQ test. They were right. The results from the first test were incorrect. This time, he scored a 160. Ed Kemper was a genius. There are a couple of other things Kemper developed while at Atascadero. Compulsive masturbation, along with violent sexual fantasies. This occurs when a child reaching puberty has pre-existing anger and aggression issues coupled with discovering their newfound sexuality. In Kemper's case, this was just a matter of time. However, he developed a coping mechanism during his early years of torment. He coped by appearing to the outside world as normal. Kemper did his best to put forward that impression, going as far as to earn the trust of his doctors. While there, Kemper became a member of the JCs and assisted them with testing other patients. By doing so, this gave Kemper the inside track as to how to pass these tests. By the time he was 21, Kemper was cleared to be released as his doctors declared that he was rehabilitated. 
Against their strong recommendation, however, Kemper moved back in with his mother. I got paroled to my mother. Atascadero decided that I didn't never need to talk to her again at all. Don't give her a Christmas present. Leave her alone. She got her pound of flesh out of you. I wasn't sniveling about my mother to them. I didn't like to hear what they had to say about her. Now living with his mother in a suburb of Santa Cruz, California, Kemper assimilated himself back into civilian life. He took some classes at the community college and held a few odd jobs. He also began hanging out in one of the cop bars in town, the jury room, and befriended several Santa Cruz police officers. They loved this friendly, funny behemoth of a man, and he soon applied to become a California state trooper. But because of his six foot nine frame and weighing 300 pounds, he failed to get into the academy. This didn't change the friendship he developed within the police department though. They gave him a training officer badge. He drove a car similar to that of an officer and it was stated that one officer even allowed him to borrow a gun. Shocking, I know, but don't forget this is the early 1970s. As far as these officers knew, Kemper was just a gentle giant. After getting a job working for the Department of Transportation, Kemper got into a serious motorcycle accident. No longer able to work, he was awarded a $15,000 settlement. It doesn't seem like much by today's standards, but in the 1970s, it equated to $95,000. With a volatile concoction of money and way too much time in his hands, Kemper began traveling to college campuses and local highways. What's good, everybody? This is Dave. I'd like to invite you to become a serial holic by joining Patreon. Lots of great perks are available, including a free gift, exclusive chat group, monthly AMAs, and much more depending on the tier you select. Join me now by going to patreon.com backslash the serial holic. That's patreon.com backslash the serial holic. Thank you all for your continued support. Now back to the episode. You may think that this is where his thirst for murder began, but it took some time. There were hundreds of college-age women that Kemper had picked up hitchhiking and nothing had happened. I need to be able to really communicate and ironically enough that's why I began picking people up. And I'm picking up young women and I'm going a little bit farther each time. It's a daring kind of a thing. First there wasn't a gun. I'm driving along. We go to a vulnerable place where there aren't people watching where I could act out and I say, no, I can't. And then a gun is in the car, hidden. And this craving, this awful, raging, eating feeling inside. I could feel it consuming my insides. This fantastic passion was overwhelming me. It was like drugs, it was like alcohol. A little isn't enough. At first it is. And as you adjust to that psychologically and physically, you take more and more and more. It's the same process. So. It finally came down to the thing of, do I dare bring this gun out? Already realizing if that gun comes out, something has to happen. I didn't see it then, but it was going to happen. I was playing a dangerous game with a loaded gun that got us all. This all changed on May 7th, 1972. After a heated argument with his mother, Kemper took off in his car and began cruising the streets. 
He was ready, he thought, but his first co-ed murder didn't go quite as planned. After picking up Marianne Pesci and Anita Lucesa, both 18 years old, Kemper was contemplating how he would carry this out. He nearly got cold feet until one of the girls rubbed him the wrong way in what he perceived as rude glares and snide remarks by Marianne. She epitomized what really drove me. She was a haughty young lady. She's kind of stuck up, distant. I look back on it and I see a girl that was not beautiful. She was not plain. She was somewhere in between and she was caught up in that beauty thing like kids in the valley are, okay? Valley girls trying to make something of themselves and exploit little attributes they have and to downplay other ones. And she was playing a little Miss Distant with me. He made his move. When that gun was pulled out, I launched it out and I had it under my leg, out of sight, parallel to my, to my leg in the seat. It was something that had been thought out in fantasy, acted out, felt out hundreds of times before it ever happened. He pulled to the side of the road and tied up both girls at gunpoint. He then led Marianne away from the car. Out of sight from Anita, Kemper tried to strangle Marianne and discovered it to be more difficult than he anticipated. He turned to his knife. When you stab someone, they leak to death. They lose blood pressure and you stab them more and more and more. You complicate it many times by where you're hitting, the pain you're causing, and the aggravation of the person involved, plus whether or not they leak a little faster. It wasn't working worth the damn. I stabbed her all over her back and she even turned around and stabbed her in the side and the stomach once. Why? As she turned around, I could have stabbed her through the heart. But her breasts were there. And it actually deflected me. I couldn't see stabbing a young woman in her breast. That's embarrassing. I didn't say that to them back then. I don't think I may have. But that's humiliating to admit that. That I was that affected by her presence. I stabbed her in the belly. That had to hurt worse. I didn't do it to make it hurt. I was trying to shut her up. And she ended up getting her thro throat cut. And uh, I learned the term ear to ear, what that meant, because that's the way it went. As Marianne bled out, Kemper made his way back to the car for Anita. i just gone through a horrible experience with her roommate stabbing her. And I was in shock because of it. I couldn't <laughs> believe that it was that way. And I'm walking back there bewildered. I gotta kill her. I can't let her go. She's gonna tell him. Everybody's gonna get me. She sees the blood on my hands. What are you doing? She pulled back and she gasped. And I think, oh, I don't want her to know what happened. I said, your friend got smart with me. She'd been getting really smart with me a lot, but I never hit her. I killed her, but I didn't hit her. I said, your friend got smart with me and I hit her. I think I broke her nose. You better come help. She's about to die. Why, do, why does she have to know that? I couldn't deal with telling her that. When I attacked her, she didn't at first realize what was happening. It didn't go through. She had very heavy coveralls on. It knocked her right up into the lid of the car. It didn't pierce the clothing. So it wasn't that slow a knife anyway. I kept on just mindlessly attacking. She falls back into the trunk. I just killed a young woman. I slammed down the lid of the trunk. She isn't dead. She's dying. And I panicked. I thought, I just locked the car keys in there because I can't find them my pocket. Oh my God, I locked him in the trunk. I'm kicking on the trunk lid and yanking at it. Oh no, I don't believe this. I started to run and I tripped over the gun that I'd had in my pants that I had totally forgotten was there. I stopped. I said, stop and think. I collected my wits. Check all your pockets. I picked the gun up. I stuck it back in my pants. Now remembering I had one. I checked all my pockets and there's the keys in the back pocket. I never put them in my back pocket. 
I thought I was pretty slick and went and tripped all over myself that first two murders. The first 24 hours, there were three clear times I should have been busted, and I wasn't. Because three different individuals or three different groups of people got scared and minded their own business. With both girls now dead, Kemper brings them back to his apartment. He decapitates them and then has sex with their lifeless bodies and heads before disposing of them the next day. Families reported the girls missing, but their fate was not known until August 15th when Marianne's head was discovered in the woods. Anita, however, was never found. A serial killer was born. Any release Kemper felt from the murders of Marianne and Anita was soon gone. Still fighting with his mother, Kemper took to the streets. Here on September 14, 1972, he found 15-year-old Aikoku. After deciding it would be quicker to hitchhike than wait for the bus to take her to dance class, she soon found herself in the front seat of a car belonging to Ed Kemper. Although all of his cold-blooded murders will pull at your heartstrings, this one in particular, and what Aiko does, will leave you gasping. One victim let me back in the car. I locked myself out. She opened the door for me. My gun was under the seat. What in the hell am I doing telling you that? Am I looking, am I, am I a masochist? Am I looking to be tormented further? I'm trying to show you just how awful this got, how commanding these rages got. Unlike Marianne and Anita, whose bodies were disposed of in the first 24 hours, Kemper hung on to Aiko a bit longer. Thursday night, I killed her. I took off Friday, I didn't go to work. I called in sick, took CTO. Dismembered her body, got rid of her body, but kept her head in her hands because they're identifiable. They're highly identifiable. I kept those at the apartment. That Thursday night, I took her. Friday morning, she was dismembered. Friday night, she was disposed of. Saturday morning, I left. And I didn't have, I wasn't satisfied that I, I took the head along in the hands, but I didn't, I couldn't put them someplace that I would, could be sure they would be dug up by an animal or just be somewhere. It was it's scary going out there trying to bury somebody or dispose of body parts in a community or out in the, even in the boonies where you don't know where you're at and who can come up at any moment. I had some real close calls there where people had come out of nowhere. It was around this time that police and campus security put out a bulletin urging women not to hitchhike, adding if they must, only get into cars that have a campus parking sticker. With his mother working at the university, as fate would have it, Kemper's car had such a sticker. His fourth victim, Cindy Shaw, was picked up in January of 1973. While suffering the same fate as the previous three, Kemper was getting bolder with the disposing of the remains. With Cindy, Kemper buried her head face up in his mother's garden just below her window because, as Kemper would explain, his mother always liked to look down on people. On February 5th, 1973, and in a fit of rage after having a violent argument with his mother, Kemper made his boldest move yet and drove onto the campus grounds. He soon found his next two victims, Rosalind Thorpe and Allison Liu, who were looking for a ride to go off campus. After a brief exchange, Kemper shot both girls in the head and then drove past the security checkpoint with their lifeless bodies still in the car. With his mother at work, Kemper took their bodies back to his apartment where he dismembered them and had sex with their bodies and heads.
was stated that Kemper had given many people rides in his car that ended with them still breathing when they reached their destination. Only when the urge was strong enough, and when he was pushed to the brink by his mother, did he act. In early April 1973, Kemper found himself pulling over to give another two girls a ride. I picked up two girls who were so much like the first two, it was unbelievable. Almost identical circumstances. And I let them go. Everything went towards killing them, and I didn't. But I'm saying, wow, it's uncanny. It was almost like it was meant to be that way. And I said, wow, this got to stop. And I let them out. They never even knew what was going on. I let them out. I would have gotten away with those two being murdered. I said, no, it's got to stop. That was it. The realization of a lifetime of anger, resentment, hurt, and ridicule has come to head. Since the age of nine years old, the dolls, the cats, his grandparents, the six innocent girls, all were a stand-in for what he really wanted to do. Kill his mother. On April 19th, after a brief exchange, the decision was made. I knew a week before she died, I was gonna kill her. And she went out to a party, she got soused, she came home went to sleep. I was woken up by that. I got, came out. I walked up to her bed. She's laying there reading a paperback as many thousands of nights before. And she said, oh, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Shit. I looked at her. I said, no. I said, good night. And I knew I was going to kill her. You know? And I'm so cold, it's so hard. It hurts. Because I'm not a lizard, I'm not from under a rock. I came out of her vagina. I came out of my mother. And in a rage, I went right back in. For seven years, she said, I haven't had sex with a man because of you, my murderous son. It's one of our arguments. I cut off her head and I humiliated her corpse. I have to interject for a moment. Kemper states that he humiliated her corpse. In my opinion, that's putting it lightly. What really happened is that he cut off his mother's head and used it to perform oral sex on himself. But that's not all. After he was done defiling her corpse, Kemper placed her head on a shelf, threw darts at it, and screamed at her for a considerable amount of time. He removed her tongue and vocal cords and shredded them in the garbage disposal then again had sex with whatever was left of her body. Let's continue. Six young woman dead because of the way she raises her son. And what's her closing words? I suppose you want to sit up all night and talk. I still loved my mother. And it's hard for somebody to comprehend that you murder your mother through love. It isn't a rational process. It's a very painful process. And I've got to still live with that. Kemper wasn't done though. There was one more person he decided he needed to take care of in order to stop his rampage. His mother's best friend, and partner in Kemper's torment, Sally Hallett. After hiding what was left of his mother's remains, Kemper called Sally and said his mother would like to invite her over for dinner. When she arrived, he strangled her to death and put her body in the closet. Kemper then fled town. He stopped at a payphone and called the Santa Cruz police to confess. Now remember, Kemper was a friend to a lot of these officers, so at first, they didn't believe him. It is said that some of them even laughed it off. Kemper had to keep calling back until he spoke to someone who would believe him. Police sent a squad car to the house to perform a wellness check. 
and with the grisly sight of what remained in the house, Ed Kemper's reign of terror was over. This episode of The Serial Holic was written and produced by me, Dave Jari. All music in this episode is licensed through Epidemic Sound. As always, stay tuned for more episodes, and thank you for being a serial holic. <laughs>